Um, guys, good morning. If I have not met you, my name is Nick. I'm lead pastor here. Happy to bring God's word week in and week out. Um, let's dive right on in. I don't know if I have anything special for you. Uh, so if you need a Bible, uh, you can raise a hand and an usher will get one to you. We're in Luke's gospel this morning. Um, it's going to be chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Uh, pretty powerful stuff. I'm praying that God uh, use it to encourage all of us here this morning. So Luke chapter 7, verses 11 to 17. Let me read it. We'll pray, and then we will uh, dive in. It says this, Soon afterward, he went to a town, he being Jesus, went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the, tra- from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Would you pray with me, guys? God, we want to come this morning ready to listen not to me (laughs) I come this morning ready to listen with everyone here to you but I pray that we wouldn't fill this place with a bunch of our own talk and a bunch of our own ideas God we pray that you would come in this room this morning and address us Lord, we know that death has touched every single person in this room in one way or another. That life in a fallen world has pressed upon us. And I'm praying today that you would use your scriptures to bring perspective, to bring light, to bring hope. I'm praying, God, that your spirit would fall upon us, convict us, encourage us, strengthen us, sustain us, save us, heal us. Our ears are open to you. Our eyes are looking to you, Jesus. We uh, we ask you to come now. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, I want to introduce the subject Uh, Perhaps in a lengthy way, but I thought it was worth the time. Um, Death, when you think about it, is one of those blunt realities. Um, By that I mean, it just is. And it doesn't care about your plans for tomorrow. It's no respecter of your timelines. It doesn't speak politely. It just is, and and we uh, have to face it. And I know that a lot of you, even now, and some that perhaps are out of town, but I know plenty in this church that are dealing with This blunt reality. Weeping over it. Enraged by it. Depressed by it. Perhaps even just wanting to give into it. 
so that the pain of life in a fallen world can maybe stop. When you're young, you you don't, well, I shouldn't say this. Plenty of young people face death, but at least for me as a young man, it wasn't something I thought about. It wasn't something that uh, you even consider much. You know, but as you get older and as you watch more and more of your loved ones contract, I mean, my dad, I, I was just on the phone the other day with my mom. He's getting melanoma cut from his face and they don't have the margins yet fully, you know, removed. And so they have to go in again and should be OK. But it's just you start to realize the longer you're around that you have to face death at some point. And there's this um, strange irony in our relationship with death. I don't know if you've noticed it or not. I'm just trying to think about this because it is. It's it's strange and it's ironic. Um, but on the one hand, we we have almost this strange fascination with death in our culture, right? Um, to where you know. Our news, it's all over (laughs) our news. Why? Well, you've heard the, um, the statement perhaps sex sells. Uh, I would, uh, wager that we could also say death sells. It draws our attention. How many died? Where? Who killed who? It's in our news. It's in our entertainment. Um, some of the things that you scroll through on Netflix and you see, you know, what's out there. Some of these films sort of, you just go, wow. Or in our video games or in our music. It's, it's, for some reason, we're strangely fascinated with the subject. You know, get inside of a criminal mind or a serial killer's mind and watch the story or whatever it is. We kind of have this fascination with it. But then on the other hand, <laughs> when death actually kind of steps out of the screen as it were and knocks on our door and it wants to sit down in our living room and sleep in our bed well then it's a different thing altogether right it's not out there anymore kind of entertaining kind of exhilarating now suddenly it's something that terrifies us, something that enrages us, something that keeps us awake at night, something that we oftentimes try to hide from. So on the one hand, we're fascinated by it, fill our minds with it, it seems, at least out in the culture. And then on the other hand, we're, 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 we're oftentimes trying to hide from it, at least as it relates to us personally. So we hide from it uh, behind our busy schedules. You know, we fill it up with work and play. We don't have to think or we hide from it behind the noise of our modern technologies, right? Always plugged in, always noise, always something going on, lest we have to think and face our own mortality. You know, or perhaps this is the simplest observation uh, we hide from it behind our, our cosmetics right we we color our, our gray hair we nip and tuck the wrinkles and the whatever because uh, no I'm not shaming anybody that does that I, I mean that's fine but you have to wonder about the psychology behind it underneath it And there's something about our culture and it's something about us that doesn't want to look like we're dying. We don't want death to be a reality for us. But it is. We are dying. Everyone is. And um, we have to face it. Uh, I I was in a uh, coffee shop South San Jose the the other day, and there was uh, one of those kind of local newspapers that they have in there. And I saw the the one of the headlines on the cover of this newspaper, and I was intrigued by it. It said this: "The Valley's tech elite 
have plans to outlive the rest of us. Um, whenever I see things having to do with death or whatever, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in what our culture has to say. I'm very interested in the false gods, the false gospels of our culture, because I know that we all recognize we're going to have to face death. And we all in some way or another recognize we need some sort of salvation, but we just come up with this myriad of answers. And I want to know, what does the valley here have to say about one of the most significant realities we have to face, namely death? What are they doing about it? What are they, what gospel are they proclaiming? So I opened up to the article and I read this. Death itself is the biggest social ill Silicon Valley is trying to solve. We can build apps to keep track of diabetics' blood glucose levels, to measure how soundly we're sleeping, and access medical records in an instant. But none of this stops the body from wearing out. Techies are looking for ways to cheat death. Like we can use our technology to do all sorts of things, but the body is still wearing out. Death is still having its way. How all these brilliant minds coming together, how can we stop that? Well, perhaps unsurprisingly, they are hoping that advances in technology might accomplish this cheating death. So what this article was noting is this massive flow of cash now that's coming into uh, the biotech field, um, dealing in particular with things like anti-aging science or uh, life extension technology. This money is flowing into these fields from these high-tech billionaire executives converting what uh, what they said used to be considered mad scientists now into a legitimate uh, legitimate field of study. Let me give you a few, a few examples. Kind of going from moderate to most extreme. Brian Johnson, the entrepreneur who sold his online payment company to PayPal, for $800 million. He was the first investor in um, a company called Human Longevity, which essentially is going to devote themselves to studying human genomes and the sequences. I don't know anything about this. <laughs> With the purpose of essentially doing what its name implies, namely expanding life, human longevity. PayPal founder Peter Thiel supports a company in Monterey by the name of Ambrosia. And this starts to get a little bit more controversial because what's happening at this place there in, uh, in Monterey is they are taking the blood plasma uh, stuff from younger people, like between the ages of 16 and 25. And these older guys can pay like $8,000 a pop to get their blood flowing through their veins. Just get youth back into me. I'll put down whatever it's going to take. Get youth back into me. They're not dying. They don't need, well, we all are dying, right? But they're just trying anything. Let's beat mortality here. Now listen to this. Google's director of engineering, Ray Kurzweil, he's a brilliant man. He's received honors from three U.S. presidents. He's been inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame. He was described by Wall Street as a restless journal. Uh, I should say Wall Street Journal as a restless genius. And he's um, considered by PBS as one of 16 revolutionaries who made America. So brilliant, brilliant, brilliant guy. Shaking the hands of three U.S. presidents at the White House. Because what he's done. What's his plan to cheat death? What's this guy doing to overcome the grave? Well, he's poured out tons and tons of cash, put it into this company um, named Alcor. 
I believe is actually in my hometown, Scottsdale, Arizona, where upon his death, they will sever his head from his body so that they can preserve his brain on ice in some kind of liquid goo. Okay, there are numerous people. I just looked at this. I think I can't remember who the names are, so I can't. Yeah, we're right. There's certain. But anyways, cut his head off, preserve his brain, some sort of liquid goo on ice so that, so that, with the hopes that the gospel, the savior of technology, will at some point advance to where he can be woken up his brain, at least, can be woken up from this state and can be uh, perhaps then his memories and all this can be funneled to an avatar, a machine, whereby he can go on and live forever. Now, why do I tell you all this? Certainly not for comedic effect. Not at all. This is tragic. I tell you all this to say that Billionaire, brilliant people recognize that death is a massive problem that we need to face. And they're scared about it too. And they are scrambling and grasping at straws, trying to find answers, but they will not avail. Hoping in gospels that cannot save. Technology, brothers and sisters, cannot Undo the curse that rests upon man because of sin. Only Jesus can remove that. And that's what this text is about. Told you I had a long intro. Sorry about that. This morning we're going to look at three things uh, as they kind of emerge in our text in, in, in narrative order. First... Jesus, his heart aches, verses 11 through 13. Second, we'll see that his touch unwounds. That's the first part of verse 14. And then third, we'll see that his voice awakens the dead. It's the last part of our text. So first, his heart aches there in verses 11 through 13. After healing the centurion's servant, which we spent time with last week, Jesus now travels about a a day's journey south and west from Capernaum to a little town called Nain in Galilee. Jesus is now rolling. He's he's got a pretty heavy crowd following him. It's Jesus, his disciples, large crowd, and they are drawing near to the gate of this town, we're told, verse 12. And as he's about to enter, this widow... Her dead son and another crowd following her are actually about to exit. Because funerals in that day, burials, they took place outside of the city. You get the unclean thing and you go out with it. Jesus is coming in. This woman and her her corpse of a son are going out. And in the words of one commentator, we see the way of death here. I'm sorry, the way of life here uh, is meeting the way of death we're just invited to sit back and watch what's the way of life going to have to say to the way of death before we can go any further though uh, we need to make sure we've fully taken in the scene as Luke describes it here there in verse 12, we, we, we read of a man who is dead being carried out to be buried. And we're told that he is what? The only son of his mother who was a widow. Those details matter. Those details especially matter in the ancient world. There are many layers to this woman's pain. As Jesus is approaching uh, this woman, there are many layers to her pain. First, uh, we could, uh, we might not immediately understand it in our modern culture, but for this woman to have lost not only her husband, but now also her son, it puts her in an incredibly vulnerable place in the ancient world. There are very few avenues at this point 
for a woman to actually make her, her, her own way in life and her own living. So she would probably be preparing to subject herself to public charity at this point. Maybe a rich relative who could step in and help. So she is vulnerable, vulnerable to the elements at this point and experiencing the pain on that level. But this pain resulting from financial or physical vulnerability, to be sure, is nothing compared to the pain of a mother's broken heart. I'm sure she could almost care less about that because she's walking her son out to go into the ground You don't bury your son, right? Your son buries you. And so you just imagine the pain she's experiencing. You imagine the anguish she's experiencing, even between her and God. You took my husband. I could deal with that because you left me my son. But now you take my son. I have nothing left. What are you doing? So the poor woman can't hide from death. It just keeps finding her and finding her around every corner. But now what we see as Jesus is entering the gate is that the author of life, the way of life, has found her as well. And the story hinges here. Because as he sees her, we're told, his heart aches. Note verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. It's important to note that our Savior is not made of steel. He can be touched. He can be moved. His heart can be wrung with with pain for the pains of, of other people. He does weep with those who weep and bear the burdens. And he is moved by our suffering, by your suffering. I had this long list of of. of <laughs> texts that show us how common this 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 word about Jesus's compassion motivating him is in the gospels but I don't have time to go through it just take my word for it compassion marks our savior at every step in his journey even when the shadow of the cross is thick upon him I think I preached that it on Easter he is still outward moved by the sufferings and the pains of other people compassionate through and through. There are two things I wanted to ask ourselves, actually, at this point. First, do we know that Christ's heart aches for us? Are are we aware that Jesus, when he looks upon us in our suffering or our trials or our troubles that his heart aches that he has compassion on us do we live under the skies of his compassion or are we convinced almost that we are alone in this world and that our suffering and whatever it is that we face, we face alone. Let me assure you, based upon the authority of this text and so many other verses in the scripture, you are not alone. It might feel that way at times, and the scripture gives us plenty of examples of it, people crying out. But what we also see every single time is that these people crying out, where are you, God, just don't see quite what he's doing just yet. But he is always there. And he is always compelled, motivated, moved by compassion for you. I wonder if you realize that Isaiah 54.10 is yours to claim 
by way of the new covenant that's been ushered in by Christ's blood. Let me read this to you. The mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. I mean, mountains may be falling down around you. Hills may just be dropping out. And your whole world shaking. But one thing remains steady, and that is his love and his compassion for you. Period. Not going anywhere. Do we know that Christ's heart aches for us? But secondly, as people learning from Jesus, as people being renewed in his image, as disciples following behind him and watching how he lives and, 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 and helping him, as he's helping us kind of remake our hearts, are, are we actually finding ourselves growing in compassion for other people? Does our heart ache for the struggles of, 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 of more people than just ourselves. Here's what we realize. You know, I was talking about people who feel alone in their sufferings. Well, one of the ways that people become convinced of God's presence and compassion in the midst of their suffering is your presence. His people's presence in the midst of their suffering with them. And there are people that need us in that way. Is our heart aching for them like Christ's is? Now, we need to consider um, Jesus' words to the woman there in the last part of verse 13. He says this. He says, he he looks to her with compassion and he says, do not weep. Do not weep. Now, if you did not know who this man was, which this woman didn't, then you would be taken aback at first hearing uh, of these words from this man's mouth. Because, again, knowing the background biblically, historically, what Jesus is calling this woman to do is actually opposite of everything they would be uh, engaging in at this point. They were supposed to mourn. They were supposed to weep. In fact, uh, it, was, it, was, it, was, uh, it was common practice in these days. The rabbis all encouraged it. You were supposed to actually get these professional mourners, what they called wailing women, to come along. <laughs> Sorry. That sounds funny, but it's true. Uh, To come alongside in the funeral procession and cry loudly. They might not even know the person, but they're just stirring up this mourning, weeping atmosphere. So that as you walk out with this, with this dead loved one, the whole, the whole town can know something's going on and can enter into the pain in one way or another. So mourning, weeping is what you do. When you're walking your son out to be buried. It's what you do. So Jesus' words might at first come off as a bit insensitive or even rude. Out of touch. Do not weep. Do you have any idea? Oh yeah, I do. Clearly, Jesus does not say this as one insensitive to or out of touch with suffering. Instead, he says it as one who sees through the suffering to what's waiting on the other side, to what God is doing and preparing on the other side. He says this to her as one who sees through the shadow of death to the dawn of life. Do not weep. You have no idea what I am willing and what I am about to work for you. In just a moment. Now, pause 
And again, let's consider ourselves in this. Um, because I think often we can feel along similar lines when God comes and says some of these things to us. Give you an example. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Paul writes in Philippians 4, 4 to us from a prison cell. Now, even though we're not sitting in a prison cell, and even though our suffering is nothing compared to what the Apostle Paul went through, there is still something that can ring a little hollow, ring a little insensitive, ring a little rude in those words. Rejoice always! I'm hurting, man. Life is hard. I am suffering. Things are not going the way I will rejoice always. And Paul, you are out of touch. Jesus, you are out of touch. Do not weep. My boy, my only boy is laying like a piece of meat on that board. Do not weep. But still the soft and persistent voice of God comes to us in our suffering. Do not weep. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Why? How? God sees through our suffering to the other side. He knows what he's preparing for his people. He knows what he inspired in Psalm 30, verse 5. That weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. So, Jesus, Paul, they see the morning. And it's joy, even in the midst of the dead of night, and it's sorrow. And so the word comes forth with that in view. Do not weep. Rejoice. God is on the move. This story is in our Bibles to help us see that morning in the midst of night as well. So secondly, his touch unwounds first his voice away, or I'm sorry, first his, uh, what did I say? What was my first point? I don't even remember now. How did I put it? His heart aches. Second, his touch unwounds. Verses four, kind of verse 14, the first part. Jesus turns his attention to the dead young man at this point. This dead, this dead young man is placed on what is called a, uh, it's weird because it basically is beer. It's not Coors Light. It's a plank of wood that in uh, Israel's day, what they would be doing is they would have this plank of wood and this body wrapped in a cloth laying on it for all to see. Just visible. Death, it's coming for us all. Here it is. So Jesus walks up to this scene, and we read this. He touches the beer. He touches this plank. He touches the place of death. He touches, essentially, the corpse in his realm. In our society today, um, touch is taboo. You can almost not even say that word without blushing or feeling like it's inappropriate. Touch has become a subject that's taboo. It's, it's something that we should be scared of. Something that we need to protect our children from. Uh, no doubt some of you here, even this morning, I am sure, 
have been wounded by it. The unfriendly touch of an abuser. Maybe a dad, maybe a mom, maybe a spouse, maybe a teacher. God forbid, maybe a pastor. I know the stories. If it hasn't happened to you, I'm sure you know people who it's happened to. The touch that tears. The touch that tears. And people's lives still broken because of it. This is why you want to do children's ministry in this church? Well, background check it is. Because touch hurts in our world. And we have to be careful with it. This is why many teachers now in our schools are required to refrain from touching their students. Not just spanking or smacking, but hugging or holding their hand or it's story time and one of them wants to sit in their lap. No way. No touching here. It's why when I went to Kaiser just a couple days ago for a regular routine checkup, here's what the nurse tells me. She has to ask me, do you feel safe at home? I mean, I kind of chuckle. And I, well, sometimes Chloe, you know, <laughs> Chloe seems a little crazy, but other than that. <laughs> but it's not funny. That question is rooted in a lot of pain associated with touch. They have to ask, is your home safe? Because sometimes they're going to get a a woman in there or they're going to get a boy or a girl or whoever is in there and the answer is going to be no. Mommy or daddy or my husband or whoever is, no, it's not safe. In the very place where touch is supposed to nurture home, It's the place where often touch tears and tortures and rips and wounds. But Jesus' touch unwounds. Jesus' touch heals. Um, A pastor by the name of Zach S. Wine puts it this way. The contact of Jesus' skin with the stuff of earth dots the pages of the Gospels. Bread and fish, a basin of water, a towel, a cup, wine, wheat, tree bark and tables, lilies in a field. Jesus is the one who gathered dirt into his hands, spit into it with his saliva, and hand rubbed the brew into mud and then slathered the damp grit onto the broken eyes of a man born blind. Jesus touched the sick, often on the wound. Jesus touched the leprosy of the leper, the ear of the deaf, the eye of the blind, the hand of the feverish, and the tongue of the mute. This was pitiful or compassionate touch. Such touch like a righteous army thoroughly routes the abuse and neglect of enemy hands that intend harm to the infirmed. We, the sick, long for this Jesus touch that defends and comforts. The touch of Jesus' pity preaches hope. So Jesus approaches death, approaches this corpse, and touches the beer, touches the plank that he is laying on. And in so doing, this act would have made him ceremonially unclean, according to Old Testament law, Numbers 19. The most severe form of ceremonial uncleanness came from corpses, from death. Death is not supposed to be here. You come in contact with it, you're unclean. It's God's way of reminding us of His holiness and the effects of our sin. And it's God's way of keeping us looking for the one who will come. Touch it and remove it. Jesus' act would have made him ceremonially ceremonially unclean, but he seems unconcerned with this. 
His compassion compels him to touch the corpse, to bring cleanness and life back to this young man. Even if it means Jesus himself will have to become the unclean and the dead thing on the cross. And that's what we need to see. He's not just removing death here, removing uncleanness. There is actually an exchange of sorts going on. And we won't catch it fully until Calvary. When we see it's there that he becomes the unclean thing. There that he actually took this young man's death. So that on, in this moment he could give it freely to him in mercy. It's as if Jesus is saying, don't you bury this boy. You take me outside the gate, crucify, bury me. But not him. His touch, Jesus's touch on wounds. What about yours? What about yours? Your touch. Do you have a ministry of touch? With your wife, with your husband, with your kids, with your friends, or with the homeless woman in the neighborhood park? Do not underestimate the ministry of touch in Jesus' name. Be careful with it because of the day in which we live. Guard your heart in it because we're fallen too. But don't neglect the ministry of touch, especially in your home. It heals. So his heart aches, his touch on wounds, and now we see that his voice awakens. And we start to move towards the close here. It's important to notice that nobody in this funeral procession actually asks Jesus to do a thing. I wonder if you noticed that. Most often in these stories, these miracle stories in the Gospels, there's an accent placed upon the, the, the people coming to Jesus begging for help and their faith in him that he can do something. Jesus, son of David, help me. Or last week we saw it with the centurion. Just say a word and my servant will be healed. Wow, what faith. Let it be done. But here there's no such interaction going on at all. We're not told of anything happening like that. Perhaps because nobody thought you could reverse death. Maybe when you're sick, maybe when you're near death, his body's cold. Game over. There is no pleading. There is no asking. For all we know, there is no faith. There's just death, sorrow, weeping. And here's the most amazing thing. And it's why I bring out this point. Christ's compassion requires nothing from us. His heart aches for this woman, and so he resurrects her boy. Do you hear that? Jesus' activity in your life is not ultimately constrained or limited by your puny little faith. Waffling, weeble, broken little faith. Do you realize that? His activity in his life, the only thing that limits it is his compassion. And his compassion is limitless. Does that make sense? Meaning... You feeling hopeless in your suffering? You feeling like all you want to do is cry? Like you don't even have faith to get up from the ground, let alone ask Jesus for help? That is not a problem for Jesus. 
He will raise you anyways in accordance with his compassion. So after touching the plank, the bearers stop and Jesus' awakening voice is heard there in the second part of verse 14. Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. So much I wanted to say there. But all we'll say is this. With a word, Jesus turns a funeral procession into a street party. You realize this? With a word, he turns the, the, the dead of night and the sorrow that exists there into the bright hope of morning, light and the joy. We can almost imagine this woman dancing in the streets with her boy who just Seconds before she was going to bury in the ground. Jesus says, not so fast. Do not weep. Arise. Now get to dancing. I titled this message the day we danced on death's grave. Not because of what Jesus does for this woman and her son. Although it's awesome. But because of what he has done for all of us on the cross and because of what he will do for all of us on the last day. Those are the realities to which this story points us. It's not ultimately, wow, that was great what he did for them. It's, oh my goodness, he's doing this for us. In the Bible, the um, death is called the last enemy. First Corinthians fifteen twenty six, the last enemy. But let's be clear: this is not because death is uh, the greatest enemy. It's not. It's the last enemy with reference to the timeline of God's redemptive plan. It's the last enemy that he's going to fully remove from the earth and put under his feet. But it's not the greatest enemy. The greatest enemy has already been defeated. The greatest enemy is our sin. Yours and my sin. The sting of death is... Anybody? Sin. The sting of death is sin, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 56. You remove the stinger and the bee can't hurt you. You deal with sin and death will not harm you in the end. Paul goes on in that verse and says, And the power of sin is the law. God gives us his law. In our sin, we break the law. Therefore, we are under the curse of the law, namely death. But then in Galatians 3.13, we read that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And taking our sin and our death, thereby overcoming our greatest enemy and assuring his victory over the last enemy. Death. This is why the tech executives with their billions of dollars and the... Brilliant multi PhD scientists with all of their brain power will not, they will try in vain to cheat death. They do not have the capacity to deal with the problem underneath the problem. You cannot 
deal with death if you do not deal with sin. And Christ has dealt with it at the deepest level. Because he's dealt with our sin, the greatest enemy, we can be assured he will deal with our death, the last enemy. That's why I wonder if you know what the Bible calls your death, Christian. You know what it calls your death? Sleep. You're not dead. (laughs) You're just sleeping. You're just waiting for the last chapter, for the last day. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 begins this way. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And then he comes out in verse 17 and says this, and so we will always be with the Lord. There is no death at the end of this for us. When you die, you take a rest. Or to get more specific, Your soul goes to be with the Lord and you count it with Paul in Philippians to be not lost, but gain. And your body is laid down sleeping. And you await the awakening voice, not of a mad scientist somewhere in Silicon Valley or in Scottsdale, Arizona, who will wake you from your sleep. No, no, no. You await the awakening voice of the sovereign Lord. Nick. Paul, Chuck, Karen, I say to you, arise. And your soul will be housed in a body imperishable. They will know nothing of death anymore. Christians don't cheat death. In Christ, they defeat it. And then they dance on its grave. Amen. Let's pray. God, we don't turn anywhere else but to you. Let that be true of our wandering hearts. In your compassion, in accordance with your mercy, Awaken us, God, from the deadness of our unbelief and the deadness of our sin. Awaken us to live. Let your resurrection spirit begin its ministry now in us. Reworking, rewiring, remaking, renewing. Resurrecting. God, we thank you that you dealt with the sting of death. And we thank you that we will be with you forever. It's in your name we pray. Amen.